Okay, good evening, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to introduce uh, this evening Martin Walker, who is a PhD candidate in engineering here at the university, studying the mechanics of creased thin metallic shells. Uh, today he's going to be talking about morphing structures and how they adapt their shape to suit their environment and purpose. So without further ado, put your hands together. Right, thank you all for coming, uh, and thank you for the very nice introduction. Um, I'm a PhD student. My research group is uh, the Enigmatic, the uh, sort of unusually named Advanced Structures Group. And uh, what I'm actually going to be talking about today is morphine structures. And this summarizes some work that has been done in this group roughly over the past 20 years or so. So this isn't my PhD research. My PhD's research is related to some of these things, but no one person could really do all of this in one PhD. Um, so without any further ado, I'll get started and we'll talk about actually what am I gonna talk about. So I'm gonna talk about deployable structures. And deployable structures are a, a wide range of things, but I'm gonna focus in particular on deployable structures that make use of origami. And then after that, I'm gonna switch over to multi-stable structures. And multi-stable structures are quite interesting. So this is an example of a multi-stable structure here, uh, a roll-up computer screen. Um, another example from nature of a multi-stable structure is something like the Venus flytrap. And I'll talk a little bit about how both of those things work. And then finally, what I'm going to allow you guys to do is I've got various demonstration models here. So I'm going to try and talk for 40 minutes, plus or minus, about how these things work, and then give you guys a chance to try them out. Um, I find with this sort of stuff, you really don't understand it until you can physically handle it. So hopefully, there's quite a few people here, so hopefully we can organize it in such a way that everybody can have a little try for these things. So we'll get started with uh, deployable structures in origami. So this is origami, as I'm sure you're all familiar with, the <coughs> Japanese paper folding art. Um, so this is quite interesting paper art, but we're looking more at how you can use it as a mechanism or how we can use it sort of as a, a structural solution for a problem. So we can take some inspiration from nature, for example, with um, leaves unfolding out of buds. So we can see the leaves sort of have these folds in them and they start in quite a compact shape and they fold out into quite a large shape. Now, obviously this has lots of potential useful applications such as in spacecraft, in um, consumer devices, various other things that need to be stowed compactly and then open up into a, a large volume. So one particular case of this that I feel is quite similar to a flower opening up is what's called the wrapping fold. And it's called the wrapping fold because it's a way of folding a thin, mechanism, um, thin membrane around a cylindrical hub. So this has existed for quite some time. Uh, a few people proposed it in the 1960s for various purposes. So it's not altogether new. It was proposed by Cambridge consultants in 1989 uh, for use as a solar sail. Um, also, sort of subsequently to that, it was studied in the Advanced Structures Group back in the 1990s to actually work out, um, do calculations on the exact fold pattern and um, the constraints for how this fold pattern works. There we are. Okay, so yeah, it's currently under development as uh, a star shade. 
for uh, NASA's exoplanet exploration uh, program. So here's a little video. Um, this is what you mean by a star shade. So if you can imagine you're out on a sunny day and you see, say, an airplane flying overhead and you want to have a look at it, you might need to block out the sun with your hand. So this is essentially what happens with this. So in the middle here, this is that wrapping fold. And what this shade does is this blocks the light from a star so that they can see the exoplanets that are surrounding the star. Because the light from the star will essentially blind the telescope when you look at it. You can see that. So now you can see the exoplanets emerging. So I think they're trying to develop this for deployment in sort of the 2020s, so maybe relatively soon. So that's work being done at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory with this particular folding pattern. So I have one of these here. So this was a, a lecture done at the uh, Royal Institution uh, a number of years ago. So actually this is the same model. So you can see it opens up quite nicely. It's a bit noisy, but I guess it doesn't really matter in space, does it? <laughs> so it's actually quite interesting because you see the center turns. rolls up quite compactly for uh, transportation in a conveniently cylindrically shaped rocket. <laughs> yeah, so this is the wrapping fold. So the analysis that was done here at the engineering department found out some interesting things about this. So first of all, which may be somewhat obvious for anybody that's kind of played with paper, is it requires the material to be very, very thin. And actually, when we do analysis, we ought to consider the material to have zero thickness. Uh, that causes some problems, which I'm going to come back to later. Um, another interesting property, and uh, wasn't discovered here, but by uh, someone named uh, Meikawa, developed this theorem. And one sort of consequence of this is if you fold a sheet, three <coughs> sets of fold lines, so say these three, can have one sense, say mountain folds. You consider them a mountain fold if it kind of opens up towards you. Then the other one has to be a valley fold. Now, if you could try that folding just a piece of paper, and you'll find this always seems to be the case. Either you get three valley folds in one mountain, or you get three mountain folds in one valley. So this um, constrains the sort of fold pattern that we can have in this wrapping fold and many other forms of origami. Another one, which if you think about it for a little while and maybe try it, is you can actually intersect three fold lines and then compress something flat. It doesn't work. It stays kind of in a triangle shape and you can't fold it flat unless you create another fold line. So here are the patterns of folds for this wrapping fold and you can do various things with it. You can have uh, any number of folds you'd like. But an interesting consequence is actually the folds have to be a polygon. So here, um, this is an eight-sided polygon. This one, I'm not sure how many-sided this is, but it's becoming quite close to a circle in this case, but it's still actually a polygon with many sides. And the number of sides of this polygon has to be equal to the number of folds here um, coming off of it. And finally, in general, the number of sides of this polygon has to actually be equal to the number of folds. You'll see, so this is an octagon here. It has eight sides. And it turns out that there's eight folds here. And in general, the number of folds has to be even. So the pattern goes, say, mountain fold, valley fold, mountain fold, valley fold. So in order for that pattern to work, you have to have an even number of folds. So actually, I have a couple of 
uh, demonstration models here. So I have a piece of paper you guys can come collect later if you'd like to try and make one. So there's this one, it's a nice little model uh, with the many folded sides. So that's the one on the right or your left. Uh, and this one is the, uh, the one on your right. So you can come and pick one of those up and try to make it yourself later. <coughs> but as I said before, um, this requires the material to be very thin. It also, right now, we're using a very <laughs> flexible material. But if I wanted to use a material like steel, for example, so here is a Professor Zong Yu at Oxford did a lot of work on this and created this uh, rigid folded steel shopping bag. Um, I'm not sure how practical it is, but it's a very interesting exercise in terms of how to calculate where the folds need to be to fold something that actually has rigid panels. You'd be surprised when you try origami how much you actually need to bend the panels to make these things work. So this, that rule is not allowed. So wood, same sort of case. Solar panels, we like to say we want to use these in space, so solar panels aren't typically very bendable. So if I wanted to do something like this, I'd have to consider that the fact that the panels are going to be rigid. <coughs> so this is almost a rigid uh, version of this wrapping fold that we saw earlier. So as I say, these are rigid panels, and, and this means that the panels cannot bend. The material cannot bend, and that adds another constraint to our analysis. What we usually do is we consider the panels being rigid, and we connect them with hinges, so discrete hinges and rigid panels. A uh, sort of famous example, probably one of the most fundamental examples of this rigid origami, was invented by uh, Japanese astrophysicist Koro Miura back in, I believe, the 1980s. It's not actually that clear when he first proposed this. So I have a version of this right here. There's a variety of versions of it. So, um, yeah, it's kind of fun to play with. But when you uh, move it around, and you'll get to try it out later, you'll see that actually the the flat parts of the fold actually don't bend at all. So it's quite interesting that it gets all this movement without bending. Yeah, so for those of you who are a little bit further away, so it has quite, quite nice behavior as it stretches. So what we can do is, if we're making this assumption that all these folds are rigid, all these panels are rigid, then we can develop a mathematical model of this, and then we can predict what will happen when we try and move it. And it so turns out that if we assume this rigid panel for the Mira pattern, that if we move any angle in here, say this opening angle, so we open one little cell of it, that will actually cause all of the other dimensions to change correspondingly. So I can imagine just changing this one corner, it would have an effect on the whole thing. The other one, um, it's called a negative Poisson's ratio. If you think about, say, a banana, and you squeeze the banana, the banana would squirt out the top, for example. So this is typical of most materials. If you squeeze them in one direction, they expand in another. But the mirror pattern is different, because if I stretch it this way, it expands the opposite direction. So this is what we call a negative Poisson's ratio, Poisson's ratio being the ratio of stretching in the one direction to stretching in the other direction. So in this case, I stretch it this way. It also expands in the other way. So that's a kind of unusual property. 
and also related to the fact that we're working with rigid origami here. So this has actually been used in spacecraft a few times. So back in the 1990s, it was used. It's not a great picture, really. Best I could find of this space flyer unit. So it was used for the solar panels in the space flyer unit. More recently, it was called the Sprout nanosatellite. So you can see it here a little bit more clearly. So this was an attempt to try out a solar sail. So this was uh, this Miro pattern here. So as I say, this still requires the material to be very thin. And you'll find that roofs, solar panels, and things that we may want to make with origami don't tend to be very thin. So this adds another sort of problem in that we can imagine this is our thick origami here. And I want to bend that. This is going to happen. The hinges are going to bind here. So this adds another sort of problem that we need now need to deal with and more constraints on what we can actually make with origami. So here's one potential solution. So we take all these hinges in the line here and then we offset them to the edges which allows it to fold nicely. Um, this may look somewhat familiar as a set of bifold doors. So not really that innovative particularly, but this works. Another possible and slightly more unusual option is we start with the hinges all in one line. And we keep them all in one line, but we kind of chisel out sections in order to allow the hinges to move. And that allows it to fold up quite compactly as well. So that's useful. But the intersection of folds now becomes a bit of a problem because you saw the bifold doors. That's all fine and that works. So we can imagine, say, a shape like this. And I want to fold this up so it folds like this. You can imagine that if these were all the sort of bifold door hinges, that they would be sort of still running into each other. So this requires some more complex analysis. So here's this case. That's the model I was just showing you. We can make it thick like this. Um, and here's a video of how this works. We don't unfortunately have a model of this. But you'll see how all the different folds have to go around and sort of nest between each other. So we can work this out by considering this whole thing as being a spatial mechanism. And what I mean by a spatial mechanism is it has various rigid parts that are connected by hinges, like here. And then we can analyze that just like we would a machine, for example, that had different hinged parts and rigid pieces connecting to it. Somewhat like this. So these red cylinders could be the hinges, and then these gray circular arcs um, are rigid pieces. And you'll notice it has these little steps in here. So these steps are necessary because it turns out there's been a lot of work done on the mobility of mechanisms like this. And it also turns out that mechanisms with four hinges is actually quite difficult to get it to have any mobility at all. Um, and it turns out that in this case, there's really um, kind of two, but really only one mechanism that actually works. And in this case, um, we're referring to this as a spherical four-arm mechanism. And the four-arm means it has four rotational degrees of freedom. And in order for this to be a spherical four-arm mechanism, it has a very, very specific set of rules for the geometry of this. So these hinges have to be related to each other in a very, very precise way for this to work. So if we return to this origami, 
we now must make sure that all these hinges meet this geometric constraint in order to actually be mobile. And that's why we get this very unusually shaped <coughs> stepping pattern instead of our nice flat model that we had when we used the thin origami. But that's fine. We can do some actually quite complex things like this one. So as you can imagine, it takes a fair amount of work to actually calculate how all the different parts need to nest amongst each other for this to actually work. So you can imagine maybe this is why we don't all have origami houses or origami <laughs> cars or something. It's actually quite tricky to actually get this thing to work. But you can try it at home, get some you know, pieces of cardboard or pieces of wood and try and actually make something that pulls together. It's very difficult, so uh, yeah. Uh, there's a paper published in Science. Uh, so Science is one of the most prestigious academic journals in the world, and so there's a paper published in Science on exactly how to do this. So it gives you some idea on how difficult it is. And that was re quite recently, actually. It was back in 2015. So, <laughs> so I'm going to move on from that now. So I gave you a little bit of a taste of how origami structures work, how we can use them, and also some of the difficulties in using them. Uh, and I'd like to do the same for uh, what I call multi-stable structures. Multi-stable structures are quite interesting, so let's start with a multi-stable structure in nature. So as you can maybe, you would imagine that this uh, somewhat terrifying looking plant is a Venus flytrap. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, it basically eats bugs. So a bug comes and lands in here, it hits one of these little hairs and that triggers the mechanism of the plant to snap over the bug, and the plant then consumes the bug for nutrients. So here's what happens. So there's a little probe that's now disturbed one of those hairs, and you can see that it's curving outwards right now, and now it snaps, and now it's curving inwards. So we can see, so this is sort of a convex version before, it opens, and now it's a concave after. So this has two states that it's happy to be in. It's happy to be in the convex shape, and it's happy to be in this concave shape. So this is what we could call multi-stable. It has two stable <coughs> places that it's happy existing in. So we have some more familiar multi-stable structures. So you've probably encountered a light switch before. So it has... <laughs> two stable states, on and off, so we're quite familiar with that. Um, many of you will be familiar with the common snap bracelet, so um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, you snaps. You can wrap it around your wrist. Uh, might be dating myself a little bit, but these invertible pop caps, I don't know uh, if kids still use these today. Um, <laughs> but you invert them and you put them on the ground and then after a short time they uh, go back to the original state and then hop off the ground. So quite fun. I think you can still get them. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of like a multi-stable structure, although the second sort of stable state doesn't actually last that long. So here's another one that's kind of fabricated. So this is a square that can be kind of made into a diamond shape. You can imagine assembling a number of these into a, a larger array to get some interesting shapes. Or this one, which is a bit more related to my PhD research. So this is a crease sheet that has, can be curved in two different directions. 
I also have some other interesting ones I have here, which you can try it later. So I have this one, which, um, so it's a tube. It exists in kind of a rolled up state, and then you can open up. Now exists in this sort of extended state. Um, so this has been marketed by a company called Rollatube for a variety of different applications, including in military applications and space applications. So this one's quite fun. <laughs> Another is roll of computer screens I alluded to earlier. So here's a roll of computer screen. It's a nice uh, cylinder. Here we go. Now I can use my computer. If I want to put it away, I can roll it up, put it in my pocket, what have you. This is quite nice. Fortunately, the electronics people haven't quite caught up with us yet, so we don't have a nice uh, flexible screen to put on this so you can um, see what Windows was like back in the 1990s. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, you can try that later. Uh, so I want to talk about how they work. So the first key here is this word stable. I've mentioned stable a number of times, but we should actually define what we actually mean by stable. So what is stability? We can imagine if I have this block and it's sitting at the bottom of a valley. We can all imagine that block, if we don't do anything to it, it's going to sit there quite happily forever. <coughs> now, if we try and push, push it up the valley, it takes quite a bit of effort. And what we're doing is we're actually increasing its potential energy. So we're increasing its gravitational potential energy by pushing it up the hill. If we let it go, it would roll back down the hill to its original place. So if we keep in mind that this pushing out of a hole or pushing out of a valley requires an increase in potential energy. And we look at the opposite case here, which looks very precarious. We, uh, we position the same block on top of a very pointy mountain. And we can imagine that any little gust of wind or little shove is going to tip it over. And what will happen when it tips over is it'll start rolling down the hill and it'll be trading its potential energy that the, uh, the man used to push it up to the top of the hill. It'll be converting that back into kinetic energy because it'll be continuing to speed up as it falls back down. So when it's here and it needs to move away from this state, the, this state, the potential energy is going to go down. And we can imagine this for the state of, uh, we can imagine this in the case of a spring. In a spring, <coughs> it's quite happy being in its non-extended state. Now, if we stretch it, this requires us to put in some energy. If we compress it, this also requires us to put in some energy. And when we release it, what will happen is it will come down to here. So say we extended it to here. What will happen is when we release it, its shape will go back down to the minimum. So we can call this a potential energy minimum, or a potential energy well, or a potential energy valley. You kind of get the idea here. There's a bit of an analogy we can make to a landscape. We can imagine this as a, a valley. And we can imagine that when we're on some position in this valley, that we might roll down to uh, sort of the bottom of the valley. So most structures we encounter behave like this. Uh, after we deform them, they bounce back to their original shape. So here's like a, you can imagine a beam. So I bend it and it keeps on bouncing back to its original shape. Even say the wing of an airplane, you'd be a, a little bit worried if your wing didn't bounce back to its original shape. Um, so you quite often see this, it'll flutter around, but eventually it'll go back to where it started. Um, so this is how most structures work. 
But imagine that the potential energy, if I plotted it for my structure, so I put potential energy on the vertical axis, <coughs> and the deformation, some deformation coordinate on the horizontal axis, that maybe it makes this shape. I can see that this point up here, A, is a stable point. Uh, stable point. It's in a little valley. If I leave it there, it's not going to roll anywhere. B, on the other hand, is at the top of a, of a hill. So if I leave it there, it's likely to roll down. C is probably already rolling down. So it's definitely not stable. But D here is quite happy, being at the bottom of the valley. E is a bit interesting because it would take some effort to push it up this side, but it quite, quite easily roll down the other side. So what's happened here is we have a structure with two stable states. So we have a stable state at A and a stable state at D here. So this slide might lead to the question of how can this actually happen? How can we get a structure that has these multi-stable states? So there's a couple of different ways, but the one that I want to focus on is there's a competition between different mechanisms. You can imagine that in the case of this roll tube that it's in this case, it's in this shape, but it also wants to be in this rolled up shape. So the, both of these shapes are competing with each other. It wants to be a rolled up shape and this sort of long elongated shape. So those two rolling mechanisms are competing. I have a somewhat contrived example to sort of reinforce this idea. So imagine I have this spring and rod model. Uh, this for people that are further away. So I can kind of disturb this from its natural state and it keeps on going back. If I push it enough, it snaps over to the other side. And again, it's quite, quite stable here. I get it sort of to the middle and it flops over. So this is multi-stable. So if we look at how this works, let's color code the spring. So let's say the top one is blue and the bottom one is red. And we call this angle here between the <coughs> vertical and this black rod theta. So I plotted theta on the horizontal axis. So theta could be, say, positive it's, if it's moving clockwise and negative if it's moving counterclockwise. And I can plot the energy, this potential energy of the blue spring. So when theta is zero, so that's when this black rod is pointing exactly vertically, let's compress the blue spring to its kind of minimum energy state or to its sort of natural length. And as I move away from that point, so if, as I move this rod, say, clockwise, I'm stretching the spring, so that causes its energy to go up. But now if I look at the red spring, when this is vertical, the, the red spring is stretched the most. And when I move it, uh, when I move this rod clockwise, it causes the red spring to reduce in length, which causes its energy to drop. Now if I wanted to get the total sort of energy of this whole system, I would have to add these two lines together, which is what we do, and this is the result we get. And we can see that this has these characteristic two minimums. And we can imagine if we put a little marble on there that it could roll either way. We started from the start. And where these minimums are, are the places that this is happy to be. So this is one of these minimums, say around uh, from that maybe 25 degrees or so. And on the other side, that 
at the same point that 25 degrees does. So now we've created a multi-stable structure by having a competition between two different deformation modes. One spring wants to pull it one direction, another spring wants to pull it a different direction. So we can apply the same thing to this row of two here. And we can plot its energy, which is a little bit more complicated operation, but this is the plot we get. So we get this nice surface. And we can see quite clearly that if we dropped a marble in here, it'd roll into here, maybe, or it would roll down into here. And it so turns out that this case is the extended case. And this other minimum here is the rolled up case. We can actually calculate how much energy we'd require to change its state from one to the other by calculating sort of the energy, say if I'm in this state here, the energy required to get from here to the top of the hill before it rolls back down. So this is actually used in a variety of applications. I mentioned a couple of them uh, in terms of military applications. This one's quite interesting for space applications. So um, Northrop Grumman, um, this aerospace company, uses this, and they've called it the Storable Tubular Extendable Member. And they've <laughs> they like their acronyms in the space industry, so they've uh, called it STEM. <laughs> and apparently, they've trademarked it. Um, anyway. It turns out that they've actually used this in the Hubble Space Telescope to uh, deploy the solar arrays. Now, I have a very, very, very much larger version of this here. <laughs> um, it's unfortunately not motor-powered, it's human-powered, but you can kind of get an idea of what happens to this. So you can actually store quite long, uh, long elements in a very compact space. So you can try that out later. <laughs> so you might wonder if you can make your own, and it turns out you can. So uh, if any of you have a broken tape measure, you can uh, cut it up into pieces um, like this, and you'll find that it really only will exist in one shape. It keeps on springing back to its original state. But what you can do, oh yes, be aware that it has sharp edges. Uh, it also can kind of spring at you, so just be careful. You can wrap it around a pencil or some other thin object. So like this, if you're really brave, you can wrap it around your finger, say. So you wrap it really tightly. And then you can release it, and it will be in this curved shape. So what we've done now is it was originally in this straight shape. Now we've introduced another shape that is competing with this straight shape. And what happens now is it wants to be in both shapes at the same time. So it wants to be in the straight shape, and it wants to be in the rolled up shape. This is essentially how these snap bracelets are manufactured. You can try that out later too. Or try it at home if you like, if you want to destroy a tape measure. <laughs> so this is actually, interestingly, almost the exact mechanism that the roll up computer screen uses. So we look really closely at this, and you can have a look at it later. It might not be that clear from the picture that this sheet is actually corrugated. So you can imagine that it's several kind of, of these snap bracelets all aligned together. And that's why it behaves in a very similar way 
to a snap bracelet like that. Turns out it's not as straightforward to manufacture, <laughs> but it can be done. Yeah, it's quite nice. So that concludes what I want to say. Um, I want to see if anybody has any questions before <coughs> we move on. Yes, the front. When you drew the um, potential wells for that kind of thing, yep. like the stem thing, yep. um, they're not necessarily of the same depth. No, yes, that's true. Which kind of means that it really wants to be in the second shape rather than the first shape, where it's happy to sit in the first shape yeah. because yep. it's in a well, but it would prefer to be in a deeper well. Yes, exactly. That one was like, as you pull it out, it automatically starts to put itself up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, on some of these, um, you can really feel that. I was experimenting with one today with one of my colleagues, and you can really feel that it, it very much prefers to be in one, and it's quite, it's really precarious in the other one. So this can definitely happen. Yeah, yeah. like measuring tape, if you're not careful, it you know, snaps back in again you know, as you start cutting your fingers in a process. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's a very delicate operation to balance these two mechanisms. And if you get it just, just off, it won't work. For example, in this case, this is our really simple case here, if I change these springs to different springs, this may just not work anymore. It just so happens that these two springs balance each other at this particular geometry to make this work. Are they both in tension? Yes, they're both in tension. Yeah, I had to stretch them both to get into this, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not straightforward to get these two mechanisms to balance so you get these straight, stable states. Um, yeah, a question at the back? Kind of, it's more yeah. proposal. Okay. I'm putting it out there so it can't be patented. <laughs> right. Because um, now everybody's going to know it. Uh, it occurred to me while you were talking and talking about transporting materials through space, mm -hmm. the logical conclusion is what you do is you transport packets of raw materials and a 3D printer, i.e. the smallest mm -hmm. possible volume to minimise fuel. Three D printer shapes, and you get to the other well. Mm -hmm. These morphing structures, voila, building. Yeah, there exactly. You yeah, <laughs> very good. You can't pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> Heard it here. Yep. I was wondering if there are any examples of multi-step structures with three stable states or more. Yes, there are. Yeah, um, I unfortunately don't have any here, but they have been developed as uh, structures with many stable states. Yeah can direct you to my colleague, at Paul, at the back, who's working on one right now. Um, yeah, uh, there's also a category of um, structures called zero-stiffness structures, which um, is interesting because how I showed that landscape, how there were certain minimums. You could imagine if you had just an infinitely long, flat line, what would happen? So you could just move a structure, and it'd be there, and you could move it over a bit more. It'd be a different shape, and you keep on moving it around. So in a way, it would have infinite states, or every state would be a stable state. So, yeah, you can do lots of things like that. just gets progressively more difficult to do. <laughs> yes? I don't understand how E is unstable. Sorry, E? Yes, number E. Number E. Oh, okay. Let's go back for a second. Yeah. Uh, hold on a second. Ah, here. E. So, who can imagine this is a ball, this is like a, a marble on a, on a track. If I try and push it this way, I need to put a lot of effort to push it up the hill. But you can imagine if I just nudged it from the right, 
it's going to roll down this way um, quite quickly. So in a way, it's kind of prevented or it's, it's not likely to move to the right, but to the left, it can move very easily. It might be, yeah, I don't know. It, it wasn't drawn that carefully, yeah. It, it very well could be. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, the intention is that, that it doesn't go up a little bit, that it just is sort of just on the edge of a hill. But it's very observant of you to, to catch that small little bump. <laughs> yes? Do the structures have applications in the pool Yeah, potentially. They've also been um, uh, for that, but also for energy harvesting applications because you can put a small amount of energy and then it snaps to even further. So yeah, so that has been used in some cases like that as well, yeah. There's a, there's a fair amount of research being done on these on applications. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that's definitely one of them. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, so these are used in, uh, it's been proposed to be used in some electronic circuits where you, um, you can kind of disturb it a little bit and it doesn't go, but if you put it enough force on it, it snaps to a different circuit, this sort of thing. So yeah, um, it's actually been made to be very, very small, sort of atomic kind of levels of dimension. So yeah, a lot of applications potentially in electronics and anything like that, yeah. Yeah? If I had a paper clip, I yep. could unfold it into a straight piece of wire. Yep. And I could then bend it back into a paper clip, and I could do that several times. Yeah. But eventually the metal would weaken and break. Yeah. yeah. To meet the definition of being multi-stable, does something have to be infinitely variable between two or more states? Or is there you know, a number that's bigger than two? But yeah, so... Yeah, so that's a good question. So in general, we consider we, we're not damaging the, the object when we snap it between the different states. So like this roll-up computer screen, you could keep on unrolling it and rolling it up, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't damage or break like a, like a paperclip would. Yeah. So I might just pause for now, because um, I want there's about 20 minutes left, and I want everybody to be able to give these things a try, because I think giving them a try will really give you a sense of how they work. So there's a couple things. Uh, let's scroll over to the end first. Uh, yeah, so questions. There we are. So now it's your turn. Very good. But um, as usual, we have to make some health and safety notes. Um, so be aware, some of these have sharp edges. So for example, these ones, um, the edges are a little bit sharp. There's some tape on it, so just be aware. Um, also, these computer screens, they only roll one way, so towards the screen. Don't break them the other way. Or I'll get in trouble for breaking um, demonstration models. Um, also, the, as you can imagine, these uh, snapping sort of tape measure here also has sharp edges. Um, obviously, there's stored elastic energy. So, <laughs> um, in particular, this one. Um, tends to snap and can snap on your fingers, so just be careful with it. Uh, 
Also be gentle with these, please. <laughs> uh, in particular, um, the origami models like this one, um, and I have a few over here. Uh, they're made of paper, so they will tear. Um, so just try and be gentle with them. Um, and that's pretty much it. So what I'd like to do, so I've kind of distributed them out. I've got this roll-up tube here. I've got uh, another sort of smaller but quite long uh, roll-up tube here, as well as the roll-up computer screen. I've got two of those. I'll leave those over on this side of the room. On the other side of the room, I'll leave this, the origami duct. So with the wrapping fold and the neuro pattern, I'll leave over here. And finally, in the center here, I have a couple of these sheets of the wrapping fold that you're welcome to take with you if you'd like to try it at home. So that's it for me. I'll stay around here and try and answer questions if you have any more. Thank you.